So we're going to read uh, together <clears throat> the passage that's going to inform our message this evening. You can find it on the back of the service sheet, <coughs> Matthew 18, 15 to 20. It's a bit of a, a famous passage when it comes to the subject of church discipline, which is the topic of our talk this evening. And uh, I just think that's probably linked to the fact that there's less people here today as well, because it's the one uh, that causes fear. But I, I think that a lot of that fear is probably um, misinformed. So anyway, let's read God's word together. And then we're going to come to think about church discipline and how it works uh, for us to be a healthy church. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. This is God's word. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind in earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on, on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. We'll be coming back to that passage uh, during, during the talk. Um, so keep, keep hold of that bit of paper. <clears throat> uh, tonight we are looking, as I said, at this subject of church discipline. And... Uh, Sort of take, taken in isolation, it's a bit of a, uh, a daunting prospect to actually be standing here in front of you talking about church discipline. It's not a big seller. Uh, it's not the one that people want to buy the CD for and read the books on and come along to the conferences on church discipline. Um, you can kind of understand why, because the term itself is quite, uh, well, scary, nasty. We don't want to think about that. It's kind of negative. Uh, we're more interested in evangelism and the gospel and good stuff like that. Uh, but I put it to you at the start, and I hope to explain this and show you as we go through, that church discipline is integral to what we are doing as a church. And in fact, if anything, um, it, is, it, is, it is tightly and closely linked to the gospel and to evangelism. And so therefore, if we get our understanding right about church discipline and what, what it means and what it doesn't mean, and how it functions, then I put it to you that our gospel proclamation will actually be stronger, our evangelism will be better and our church will be healthier. That's why it's one of the marks of the, a healthy church. Uh, last week we looked at church membership. Uh, and so this is in some ways the flip side of church membership or one of the component parts of church membership, which is church discipline. Next week we're going to be looking at discipleship, which as you can tell is a similar word. Um, and so that's another way, in some ways, of understanding church discipline. So it's sort of split between those two, church membership last week, discipline next week. But where does it lie in the overall picture, in the overall story of the Christian faith? Well, uh, we looked a few weeks before that at this idea of conversion, of coming to faith in, in Christ, being converted, becoming a Christian. And I mentioned at the time, I don't know if you remember, that, that when, when, you, when you become a Christian... There's two changes, really, in your life, or two Cs. Uh, your character changes, it will change, and the context 
changes in which you live your life. And the context we saw last week that the changes when you become a Christian is that your life is lived in the context of the local church. That's not all you do in life, but certainly that changes. That's a big shift from before. And your character also changes, and we'll see that next week as we look at discipleship. So context and character both change when you come to believe in Jesus Christ and when you are converted. Uh, I, I like to use the metaphor, I think it's helpful, uh, of a tree. Uh, I'm, I'm certainly not the first person to use this, but uh, it works for the purposes of today for church discipline. Think of a tree and a, how a tree begins as a seed. And so uh, we can think of the seed in this, in the understanding of the local church, the seed is the gospel. Jesus used that. So I'm kind of borrowing it from him in, in Mark 4, and, and other people have used this as well, obviously. Uh, but the seed is the gospel. And the gospel, as we've been learning from week to week, is this, that be, despite the fact that all people from uh, our first parents, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, everyone from there onwards, right up until today, including me, including you, everybody else in this building here, all people are sinful. They are enemies of God uh, because they've done things against his will. Uh, they've not done things they should have done. In thought and word and deed, they're sinful. And God is enemies against sin. He is so holy and perfect that he can't look at sin. All people are like that. And if that's not bad enough, the Bible also teaches that not only are we sinful in God's sight, but we're utterly helpless. We can't do anything ultimately to change God's mind about us. We can't win him over by doing good works, good things, giving to charity, being nice people, living moral lives, attending church. We can't do anything. So the gospel is, is, is on one hand, bad news. But the great thing, the good, the amazing thing that we see in the Bible is that despite our sin, despite our helplessness, Jesus Christ, we've just been singing about, has done all the work that is necessary for us to be made right with God. He took the punishment for our sin. He took the anger and the wrath of God for our sin when he died on the cross and rose on the third day. And because of that, sinful people like you and me can be forgiven in the sight of God. And we saw this at week four in conversion. It's when, when, when you receive the good news of the gospel, it is as if you have gone from darkness to light or spiritual death to spiritual life. And so that is the seed of the gospel. And when you believe the seed, and when you take it in, when you express faith, when you, when you, when you uh, trust in Christ and what he's done uh, on your behalf, it, it belongs to you, it applies to you, when you receive it by faith, that is like the seed going into the ground. Going into the ground and taking roots and starting to produce new life. That's what happens when you are converted. And the ground that the seed goes into, if you like, that expresses that new life is the context, is the soil of the local church. That's where you get planted. According to the Bible, when you come to faith in Jesus, get planted into the local church. And we saw a bit of that last week when we were talking about membership. The context for living the Christian faith. But as a new believer, as someone, uh, perhaps you've just come to the Christian faith, you're, you're, you're a new believer in Jesus, uh, for every new believer, we could say you're a sapling, you're a sapling in Christ, you know, a little baby tree. You've been planted perhaps in the, uh, in the soil of the local church, but that is not ultimately what God has destined your, you for. He wants more 
than for you to be a, a little sapling that can easily get kicked over. He wants you, he desires for you to grow, if you like, into a mighty tree, into a mighty oak. Someone whose life is firm and certain and immovable despite all the things that life could throw at you. And that is where church discipline today comes in. We can understand church discipline as formative and corrective. These are sort of uh, technical terms, I guess. Uh, Formative church discipline is like placing a stake in the ground next to the sapling tree so that it grows up and it is supported and and, uh, maintained so that the tree grows straight and healthy. So that's kind of like formative church discipline. Uh, the, the, the road that I was brought up on, uh, I'm from uh, the south coast of England, and the road uh, was right on the edge of the beach. And I always remember, we, we used to take loads and loads of walks as a family down to the sea, and the, the closer that you got uh, to the sea, uh, the more and more that you saw this phenomenon among the trees, along the road. Outside our house, we're quite a way back from the sea, the trees just look like normal trees. <coughs> but as you go closer and closer to the sea, in sort of the English Channel down there, the, the, the trees themselves became more and more sort of gnarly and, and bent over and old and sort of, you know, crummy looking. And the reason is that they had no support as they were growing. And, and the prevailing winds and the, the sort of destructive forces and the salt water just kept battering and battering and battering. And over the years, they grew and they're all twisted and weird looking. They're certainly not healthy all over the place. Twigs in all different directions. And so in some ways, this formative church discipline is like placing a stake in the ground so that the tree instead grows strong and straight and rich and true. And we're going to see more of that next week when we look at this subject of discipleship. All right. So that's formative church discipline. <coughs> but the second part of church discipline, and this is the bit we're going to be spending more of our time on this evening, is corrective. Corrective church discipline. Because not only should we place a stake in the ground to support the tree as it grows, but from time to time the tree itself will require pruning. There might be branches that, if they carry on, they'll pull the whole tree over. Or they're misshapen and they're not going to allow the tree to flourish. It'll put too much energy into something that is not helping it to grow straight. It'll end up growing funny. Sometimes there's disease in the tree. It needs to be cut out. Occasionally, a tree itself is so bad, it has to be removed from among the forest, from among the other trees, in case the disease travels to other trees and affects it. So in some ways, when we're talking about church discipline tonight, it's that corrective side of it that we're going to be concentrating on. The pruning, the cutting out, the dealing with issues as they come up in the Christian life, in the context of the local church. And so they will. So what is church discipline? It is the uh, formative or corrective uh, process that we go through as we are planted in the local church. And thankfully, the Bible has lots and lots of practical advice on on church discipline. And we've read one of those passages. We're going to get back to that in a few moments. (coughs) But what kind of things uh, does the Bible count as church discipline? Or what what kind of things does it require us to do church discipline in? What what sort of things need to be pruned or chopped off, if you like, um, as we go on together as, as a church in the context of the local church? Well, there's a few general things. Uh, Galatians 6.1, I'm just going to throw a few verses out. It says, if anyone's caught in transgression, 
you who are holy should go to that person and, and talk about their sin. So that's kind of general. Any, any transgression. And even in our passage uh, this evening, Jesus said, uh, if any brother sins against you, brother, by the way, in that context means a fellow uh, church member, a covenant church member, not just men, um, other translations would say brothers and sisters, but the idea is anyone in the local church who sins against you, you've got to go. So that's kind of general. But there's other things as well, of course, as the, 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 the Bible goes on. <clears throat> Uh, some, some of the big ticket things that we are to address as a local church as and when they arise. Uh, division among the people, needless controversy, Titus 3.10. False teaching um, that is contrary to the sound gospel. That's to be uh, dealt with in the church. Sexual immorality uh, is one of the big ones as well. <clears throat> but not just the big ticket stuff as well. The Bible also shows that there are other things that should be dealt with, at least uh, should have a, a discussion about with one another. Uh, sporadic or irregular attendance at church, Hebrews 10.25. Insubordination against church leaders. Idleness. Greed. Drunkenness. All these things the Bible points out are things that we should not turn a blind eye to, but we should discuss and deal with uh, in one another as and when the time comes. The point with all this, by the way, is that we are to help one another see the sin that blinds us in our own lives. Blind spots. You may be blind to something that is quite obvious to other people around you. And unless you invite that into your life, you may never have the chance to grow, to receive the grace of God and to, to change. So that's what this is all about. Just to be clear, when we say church discipline, <coughs> we're not talking about punishment. We're not talking about revenge finger-pointing, judgmentalism. We're not talking about the happiness police or the religious mafia turning around at your house, uh, turning up at your house and saying, aha, we, we, we've caught you. You shouldn't be doing this, that or the other. That's not what church discipline is all about. But it is a mark of a healthy church. It is the mark of a gospel community. It is what it looks like to live life together. One of the things it looks like to live life together under the teaching of Christ and the apostles. It is about how we seek to grow together as God's people to become more like Christ, to become stronger and more like that strong, unassailable oak tree that God wants for each of his people. And the way that Jesus would have us do it is through church discipline. This is a pretty uh, Difficult thing sometimes to, to, uh, to comprehend or rather to, to accept. <clears throat> um, it's something that we don't see in any other sort of form of, of community. Uh, it's only, I think, in the local church where you will see this deep commitment to one another's growth, to helping one another to grow strong and mighty. And the way that we do that is through, is through church discipline. So what is church discipline? Or I've just seen it's the way <coughs> that the Bible directs us to help one another to grow stronger in Christ. But maybe you're sitting here thinking to yourself, <coughs> that all sounds fine, but surely we can, we can get on okay as a church without, without doing this. We could just sort of put that to one side and maybe that's okay for some churches, but that's not okay for us. So we're going to ask the question now, why should we do ch church discipline? Why should we do it? 
we are kind of a, in a unique situation as, as people. Uh, we've just been thinking and singing about the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And for those who have accepted the good news of Jesus by faith, the Bible teaches us that we are righteous because of Jesus. That, that means that the perfect record of obedience that Christ earned has been imputed or given to us. And therefore, when God looks at us, even though we're sinful, he sees us as perfect because of Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. And when we've received him by faith, uh, we are sons and daughters of God. And that is something that can, can never be taken away from us. It is a, a, an identity that you will possess that will last for eternity. <coughs> so you think to yourself, why should we do church discipline if that is how God sees us? And the answer is this, because we are not yet the mighty oak that God would have us be. Indeed, when we come to faith in Christ, we've said it already, we are just saplings in Christ. We are weak and susceptible, and it is our job, it is our calling to grow into, to, to, to be more like Jesus. It's an ongoing fight. We are to get into training or, or discipline to change the metaphor. Maybe this will help a little bit. <clears throat> um, the, uh, the German monk uh, that, that effectively, or sort of uh, legend has it, started the, uh, the Reformation 500 years ago this year in 1517. Martin Luther, he, he's called. Uh, he came up with this Latin phrase, which I think is really helpful as to why we should do church discipline. He says, this is the Latin phrase anyway, simul justus et peccator. Simul justus et peccator. Which means simultaneously... When we're Christians, we are justified and sinful. Simultaneously, we're justified and we're sinful. At the same time, says Luther, we are declared righteous by God. We are fully righteous in the sight of God. <coughs> and yet, at the same time, we are not the finished article. We still have a, the body of sin which is with us, until we die or until Christ comes again. And we await that time when all sin will be removed, when we'll be given new heavenly bodies and we get to be with Jesus forever. But that, that, that in-between while, we are simultaneously justified in the eyes of God and yet sinful. And so in the meantime, between our, our salvation, between our you know, coming to faith in Christ for the first time and that, that time when Jesus comes again to remove move all sin, in the meantime... We are to pursue Christ-likeness. We are to grow more and more to be like him. And so for that reason, we should do church discipline. And we cannot do that on our own, by the way. We need one another to help that process. In fact, it's essential that we do that together. So church discipline is not a list of do's and don'ts uh, that I could just come up with you and put up the Bible verses and say, don't do all these things, do do all these things. That's not what church discipline is, because that's just external conformity. It's in some ways easy to teach people to obey a certain set of rules and regulations, but that is not what Christ wants from his church. Jesus didn't die for people who can externally conform to a certain set of behaviours. We didn't need a saviour dying a bloody death on the cross simply so that we could obey a certain set of rules. The point with all this 
is that when we have received Christ, when the good news of what Jesus has done uh, is, is brought to us by the Holy Spirit, when our hearts are changed, then we will start bearing fruit. We will start showing evidence of that, of that conversion, of that transformation. And so church discipline is all about the fruit. It's all about helping one another to grow more and more fruit because when we grow fruit, then we display the gospel. We point people to, to God. We adorn the gospel. We see it in one another and it encourages us. The world sees it and it is drawn close to Christ. That is why we do church discipline. Simultaneously justified and sinful. And so we help one another to grow in grace, to grow into Christ. Maybe you're still not convinced. Maybe you think that uh, all this church discipline stuff is just pointless. <coughs> Maybe you think it's a bit regressive and that's for the sort of old-fashioned churches that are all, mm, all about the law. There's no love. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was at a conference um, in, in America and uh, I attended a particular breakout session on, on the subject of what they call church polity. Uh, <clears throat> which is about the organization of churches. It was a Christian conference I went to. Anyway, I went to this breakout session on church polity. And there in between two sort of university chancellors and seminary professors was this man with a, a beanie hat and dark eyes. And he looked a bit out of place. But actually, um, some of you have heard of him already. Uh, he's called Mez McConnell. And uh, the reason he was sat there between these two suited gentlemen uh, was that he himself was a, is a church pastor and leader and author and church planter. <coughs> but yet, um, in his past, he was a heroin addict, a drug user, um, and all sorts of other criminal activity. He came to faith in Jesus Christ. He turned away from, from his sinful past and not only that, he went into uh, the Christian ministry to share the gospel that had transformed his life. He wanted to help other people to understand that. And the best way he could think of doing that was by becoming a church planter. And so he goes around uh, planting churches, not in uh, the center of the city, although he could do that. <coughs> He's based in Edinburgh. But in fact, he plants churches in some of the most deprived areas of the city um, called schemes, you know, similar to what we call council estates, I guess, uh, schemes. Um, and so he's a church planter in the schemes in Edinburgh and beyond. And the, the reason I'm telling you this just now is because one, one thing that really struck me from the whole night in that particular session on church organization was that Mes McConnell, and he knows a thing or two about sharing the gospel and about transformed lives, he said that by far the most effective evangelism strategy in his church experience, the, the thing that consistently resulted in people being converted to Christ is church discipline. <coughs> it's not big events that his church put on. It wasn't gospel tracts that his church gave out. It's not even running things like Christianity Explored or Alpha, although those things are all very helpful together. But he said the number one most effective evangelism strategy in his experience is church discipline, which is the subject of what we're talking about today. 
He said, when you spend time with people who are hardened sinners, and let's face it, who isn't, (coughs) and you show them and demonstrate to them from the Bible and in their own lives how serious sin is, and yet the extent that Jesus went in order for those sins to be forgiven, for the slate to be wiped clean, for you to be declared righteous, a son or a daughter of God, irrespective of what you've done in the past. And the availability of grace through the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you sit down with someone and show them these things, often in response to a certain pattern of life that they've been living, then he said it is just remarkable how many people turn to Christ through that process. Church discipline, who would have thought? So we thought a little bit about what is church discipline and we've, we've, we've tried to understand it in the terms of <coughs> growing a young tree and uh, formative and corrective. We thought about why we need church discipline and from this idea that uh, we are simultaneously righteous, justified in the eyes of God and yet sinful and in order to deal with that sin we have to battle together as, as people to remove and, and chop off that sin in our lives by the grace of God. That's why we should do it. And finally, we're going to come to the question, uh, part three, how, how we go about doing church discipline. And that's where our passage uh, this, this evening comes in. How do we do it practically? And there's a lot, by the way, that we can say about church discipline in terms of the, you know, the steps that we go through and <coughs> the specifics. Um, this is really just a sort of summary, I suppose, tonight. Um, but... Uh, The passage that we we, we read earlier comes from Matthew 18. And the whole of Matthew 18, starting really at the beginning of the chapter, um, talks about, Jesus is teaching his disciples about the seriousness of sin and about dealing with sin within the camp, within the church. It doesn't use that term until our passage, uh, until later on in the chapter, but still, uh, within the covenant community, dealing with sin and how to do it practically. Whoever said the Bible is, is not practical? Not me, because it's uh, very practical. Hopefully you can see that. Um, so, <coughs> let's turn then to look at how we do church discipline. Don't forget, by the way, when we talk about this, it's, it's in the context, it's in the, the soil of local church membership. Uh, so we're not talking about going out on the streets and, you know, if your brother, if, if someone out there has sinned against you, that's different. This is what happens within the context of the local church. So, let's have a quick look. Uh, Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, says Jesus, go and tell him his fault, listen, between you and him alone. So, the first step in church discipline, says Jesus, (coughs) is in verse 15, is that one-to-one thing. It is you going to your brother or sister, or your brother or sister going to you. There's just two of you at that stage. And you're alone, and you're in private. If so, and it, see, Jesus doesn't qualify the issue. If someone sins against you, go and tell him his fault. <coughs> Between you and him alone. Anything. It, it is my hope and expectation that a healthy church, 80 or 90% of church discipline, stops at the first base, because we are becoming the kind of people that are bound together 
we are family, we love one another, and we, we have this uh, connection that comes through being united in Christ and to one another. And on the basis of that, <coughs> we will cross, I don't know, the pain barrier or the weirdo barrier or the awkward barrier or the whatever you want to call it. And we'll deal with this, we'll obey these words of Jesus because we are that kind of people that Jesus is creating that will do this kind of thing. But we don't do it, as we mentioned earlier, uh, to win a battle or to show how you are morally superior or I know my Bible and there's this verse here that you have... No, we don't do it for those reasons at all. But we do it out of love for one another. And we point out the fault. (coughs) Don't forget, we are fellow sinners, simultaneously justified and sinful. And so we go to one another, not as a superior being going to an inferior being, but as a fellow sinner saved by grace to another sinner saved by grace. So there is no room in any of this for judgmentalism. But yet because of our love for one another and our love for Christ, this is the thing that we do. In fact, it is uh, an unloving thing to see sin and yet do nothing about it. To turn a blind eye to what is clearly and obviously a problem. And even if it's not obvious... To just forget about it and pretend it's not there is not a loving thing to do. If you are on the receiving end of such a conversation, (coughs) friends, brothers and sisters, then let's learn to take it well, shall we? Let's learn to be humble and embrace the gift of church discipline of a brother or sister coming to us and saying, look, this is hard for me, but we've got to have a conversation about this thing here that I've noticed in your life and, and, uh, you know, Take that as a gift, no matter how it's packaged up. You see, the, the, the hope, the, the desire for all of this is at the end of verse 15, if he listens to you, he or she listens to you, and implicit in that is, is respond by repenting and you know, receiving grace afresh and, you know, and all that, <coughs> then you have gained your brother or your sister. It's gaining that person. The hope, by the way, is not that we kick them out or say, aha, see, you have sinned, get out of the community. No, the idea with all this is that we are restoring one another back again and again and again. But then stage two, verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. (coughs) You know, in the Old Testament, by the way, if you wanted to stone someone to death, or uh, not if you want to, that's maybe the wrong thing, uh, because of the law of Moses, the law of the Old Testament, uh, certain sins were guilty of um, capital punishment. And uh, in order for that final uh, verdict to be delivered against the sin, whatever it happens to be, you need two or three witnesses in order to condemn someone. And so Jesus is using this language here of two or three, not because we are the kind of people now that pick up stones when we see sin and fire it at each other, but we're still in the realm of dealing seriously with sin. And so that's why we have this language of two or three running through this passage. In order to deal seriously with the most serious sins or the most resistant sins, you can't just do it on your own, says Jesus, two or three. And that's therefore where we need these extra witnesses. 
Uh, just a word or two on that. We're not talking here about cheerleaders or people in your pity party. We're talking about witnesses to the sin in this other individual's life. The aim here is to add gravity. They have not responded to the one-to-one. They have not seen the sin in their own lives. And so the hope here is that with other people humbly trying to help the individual to see their sin, that they will realize the gravity of the situation. They will hear the voices and they again will repent and come back and win that brother or sister back to the community. Two or three, still confidential, still kept within that group, (coughs) second base. Thirdly, then, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. This is the next step, the final step, if you want. The aim still is to win the individual back, to help them see the error of their ways. It is still done in love and humility. But yet, the more people that are now added, and we're talking about the the local congregation here, who are all, in some ways, made aware of this, It shows the gravity of that person's sin, that they have not accepted one-to-one counsel, they have not accepted two or three. Now, the local church as a a totality is involved, showing the gravity. Often it'll be led, uh, well, it has to be led by spiritual leaders, elders and pastors of the church. And the idea being, now that not just two or three will gather around this person, but the whole church will seek to reach out to win them back through a number of different ways suitable to the particular sin that is being dealt with. But it says, says Jesus, if that person will not even listen to the church, rejecting, 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 rejecting all the way, then he is to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, which is a, a, a byword for being an outsider. Gentiles and tax collectors at the time that Jesus spoke this were not part of the covenant community. They're not part of the, the church, if you like. Now they are, now they can be, but at the time they weren't. And so Jesus is saying, when you get to that stage three and this person still isn't listening to to your pleas to come back, to repent, then that is most likely evidence that they were never saved in the first place. They're not behaving like believers. They're not behaving as someone whose heart has been transformed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And despite multiple, sustained, prayerful, humble, loving attempts to win them back, this individual is hardened, does not want to change, will not change. And therefore Jesus says, you treat them like a Gentile and a tax collector. You don't stop loving them. We don't be nasty to them or send them abusive text messages. The point is that you can no longer affirm their profession of faith. This is not someone who appears to be believing the gospel. And so as such, you remove them from the membership of the church. This is the final straw. This is the way to do church discipline. As I said, 80 or 90% of church discipline has to happen at the one-to-one level. This is the very rare cases. (coughs) As Jesus goes on in verses 18 through 20, this is not just some sort of arbitrary human way of dealing with conflict. He says, truly, I say to you in verse 18, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Jesus is pointing to this this profound connection between the heavenly realms, the kingdom of heaven, and the local church. They're not exactly the same. 
And yet there is a deep and profound connection, so much so (coughs) that decisions that are made in the local church in this context, with Jesus present, verse 20, there am I among them, will be honoured, will be bound in whatever way, in the heavenly realms. There is this deep connection. There is great gravity and authority that happens when the local church gathers to make decisions such as this. That's why we often use verse 20 in the context of prayer meetings when no one turns up, where two or three are gathered. There am I among them. And that's a wonderful truth. But what Jesus is getting at here is that the decisions that the church makes with two or three, you know, those witnesses, if it, if it is right with the local church and it's, everything has been done to try and win this brother or sister back, then if you declare them to be a tax collector and a Gentile, then there is some connection with what is going on in the heavenly realms as well there's more that we can say about that but there's great gravity and authority when the local church meets so we've seen in summary what is church discipline that desire to raise up and to help grow believers in the context of the local church (coughs) we've thought about why we should do church discipline and seeing that we are at the same time justified and yet sinful and it's in all of us and around us so we have to be on guard and help one another through that and we've seen the how of church discipline as well this sort of three-step model <coughs> that jesus has given us in matthew 18 just in closing i want to affirm again that sometimes these things are hard to uh, listen to or we think that they are sort of they belong in the modern church Uh, But yet what I want to leave you with is is this understanding, and I hope that the nine marks is is really bringing this out, that this isn't an arbitrary thing or something we just do in the middle of nowhere. This is all deeply connected to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We saw last week that the local church is like an embassy of the heavenly kingdom. It represents the high king of heaven. As, as, as believers, as, as local church members, we are citizens of the realm of heaven. And so this church discipline fits into that idea. That we are a, a gospel community living together. We are fellow citizens of heavenly, the heavenly kingdom. And yet at the same time, we are simultaneously justified and sinful. And therefore, as fellow citizens bound together by the good news of Christ, we help one another to grow strong, <coughs> honouring to Christ. And where there is sin in the camp, we deal with that humbly, lovingly, patiently, because that is how Christ has dealt with us. Folks, we're going to be rolling out local church membership here at Foundation Church, formal membership uh, in the summer months. I just want to talk about it first and teach on it. Um, And maybe I'm preaching to the converted in some ways. But I want you to consider making this place, (coughs) Foundation Church, the place where you are planted, the soil where Christ wants to grow you so that you, along with us, will flourish and be nurtured through the ministry here on Sunday night, but so much more through the week as we become strong, as we radiate the gospel, grow that rich fruit that brings glory to God, that attracts the nations to him. 
and encourages each other in the local church. That is our prayer and hope for the future of Foundation.